0: have your Bibles. I hope you do. Please turn with me to Psalm 64. We'll read, excuse me, we'll read together this Psalm in just a few moments. I think probably most of us have heard At some point or another, the saying, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Words will never hurt me. We often quoted that at some time or another as a child. Uh, Maybe when people were calling us names, or maybe you weren't like me and nobody called you names. But the only problem is that saying just isn't true. Anyone who has... Any experience in life knows that words can surely cause us great harm. In fact, words alone can destroy whole lives. And this is one of the reasons why I think we find in James chapter 3, James writing about the tongue and saying how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Now, while there are numerous psalms, of which we have looked at some, in which the psalmist calls on God, or petitions God to deliver that particular psalmist physically from his enemies, Psalm 64, we'll see, expresses the desire to be delivered from the secret verbal Attack of the enemy, and David came to know. And David is the author of this psalm, and he he came to know the great difficulty and pain that often arises when others secretly seek to undo you through false accusations and verbal attacks. Now, while there there is a difference of opinion about the setting of this psalm, it, it is very possible that this. This psalm was penned as a result of the time when David's son Absalom sought to gain a following by speaking falsely about David and causing others to doubt David's leadership and and to doubt David's concern for the people. And we read about that uh, circumstance in 2 Samuel 15. Let me just give you a, a, a small section of that. It reads... And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when, the, when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, All that I were judge in the land... Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. So you could see how Absalom began to speak out, even against his own father. All of us can relate, probably at some point or another in our lives, to, to David's pain and his grief, depending on particular circumstances we each have probably faced I know that there have been numerous times in my own life when when others have made accusation or 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 I would argue false accusations or unfounded accusations to attack me by mere words. Um, And I recognized in those moments the difficulties that came as a result. And what's more often these kinds of attacks come at us from the most unexpected people, much like David when it was his own son. Sought to cause others to doubt his leadership. We are reminded through the Psalm, the words of Psalm 64, that God is in the very midst. Even when our difficulty or our trials come in the form of mere words, and often when they come without our awareness of where they are originating from, even this kind of injustice, the psalmist teaches us here, will be dealt with and made right along with all the other injustices in this world. Now, as I have argued in several of the previous messages in this short series, series, the Psalms need to be read from several differing perspectives as we read through them. And so I want us to look this morning at Psalm 64 from each of those perspectives. The first is the, the ethical perspective, or you could say of the moral perspective perspective. The second, a theological perspective. And thirdly, a prophetic perspective. So let's read together this this short psalm in Psalm 64. To the choir master, the psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. From the throng of evildoers. Who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil, evil purpose. They, they talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? And they search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search. For the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrows. At them, And they are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. Our Father, we do ask this morning as we look to this this short psalm that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us a a practical perspective of how we respond to a word or learn and grow from a word like this. Give us a a theological perspective of of how in the midst of this we find the the gospel message. And then also a prophetic perspective as we see how this psalm points forward to a very real reality in the life of our Savior. So, Father, guide us through this time. Give us a hunger to know and and, and digest your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to fully embrace. And and may your word cause us this morning to grow in our love and passion and our walk with you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we will see in, in more detail in a few moments, we must keep in mind, as I've tried to remind us, and I think as well Jared and Ryan have uh, through each of these series, that while each psalm is indeed an individual expression or a prayer that can be taken on its own, recorded by a, an individual such as David in this case, or at other times uh, Solomon, as we Jared read earlier, or Moses or the sons of Korah, the psalms are not merely individual expressions. They're not merely emotional rantings or or the the voice of one who's trying to put in words merely their emotions. They are a collection. These psalms are a collection, uh, uh, an uh, an ordered uh, group of songs done so in such a way to present a theological perspective. And therefore, while reading a psalm like Psalm 64, we are to do so in light of the previous 63. So with that being said, let's turn to Psalm 1. I'm just kidding. We're not going to look at 63 psalms this morning. Time won't allow us to observe all the ways that the, this psalm seeks to carry the, the theological perspective forward or, or even how it relates to all the previous psalms. But we will consider this morning how it fits into the overall structure of the psalms and seeks to support the singular most significant theme that we, I hope, established at the outset of this series as we looked at the Psalms one and two, which serve as the introduction to this great book. But before we arrive at the theological perspective, let's first consider the ethical perspective. On the surface of every psalm, all the way through this entire book, we we immediately discover an, an emotional tone. Now, I know you hear me saying that it's not merely this, but that's not to overlook it's not to bypass this ethical aspect. There's, there's an emotional tone that, with which when we read these psalms, we, we begin to at times, depending on our ups and downs of life, to relate to. And we often go to psalms, don't we? In, in those grieving times, we have those ones we latch onto because they, they express in words in ways that maybe we don't know how to. But we relate to them. And, and such is the case in this particular psalm, Psalm 64. And David begins by requesting that God hear his complaint. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Now, just off, from the very beginning, I don't know if that resonates with you, but who among us has not found ourselves with a good reason to complain? Right? I mean, at some point or another, we, we complain Eh, we might know we shouldn't or feel guilty, but nevertheless, we do. It, it may even, as we read a psalm like this, it might even bring us some measure of comfort to, to know that the man who was defined as the one after God's own heart did his share of complaining. He did, however, as we read here in Psalm 64, take his complaint to the one who could actually do something about his complaints. You see, as we read about this complaint, immediately after David makes a request to, to, for God to hear his complaint, he, he then mentions his goal, what he wants. David makes his ultimate request known before elaborating on this complaint, which is what he's going to do in verses 3 through 6. He's, going to, he's not going to just say, I'm complaining, God. He's going, to, he's going to go into detail. But before he does that, he reveals that he desires that God would preserve or protect him from the dread of the enemy. Whatever David's enemy was saying or doing, in this case it, was, it would be saying, it caused David to face, at the very least, an emotional anguish. Some turmoil within that he was struggling with. And, and it hurt. It affected him in a very real way. In other words, in this particular circumstance, words did in fact hurt. And David would probably have preferred some broken bones. What made matters worse was that David was unaware what was being devised against him. And therefore, because he didn't know what was being said or where it was originating from, he could not adequately respond in order to to rectify that situation. Whatever the problem was, he could not respond to that. And that is why he asked that God would, in verse 2, hide him from the secret plots. So he desired that God, in his great sovereignty, and his great concern, would would kind of just envelop David from the midst of these, these attacks that were being made against him. But then David elaborates on this complaint that he establishes here in verse 1. He, in verses 3 through 6, he, he develops this complaint. and He reveals that, that his complaint is, is about, in fact, what others were saying. It, in this case, it wasn't about fleeing from Saul who's throwing a spear at him. Or, or those kinds of things. Or physical infirmities that he was facing because of hunger. It wasn't any of those things. It was it was words. It was what people were saying. And he portrays in this psalm. He portrays their tongues as swords. And their words as arrows. And it is this illustration that reveals the, the fallacy of that childhood saying. Mentioned earlier. Sticks and stones may break my bones. But words will never hurt me. Because... They do, in fact, at least for David, they do bring about a great deal of anguish and harm. And then what made matters even worse was that the words that David is speaking about were coming from an unseen adversary. The words that he was bringing to God, the complaint he was bringing to God was about what was being said to undermine him or to undo him. But he didn't know from whence it was coming. He, he didn't know where it originated. And so that made it even worse. Uh, the adversaries, he, he, he tells us as he unpacks this complaint, uh, were saying harmful things to others about David, but were unwilling to make themselves known. Uh, they, we were hiding, lurking in the bushes. They were unwilling to come forward and, and face the one whom they were accusing. They shot their arrows, the psalm says, from a safe distance so as not to create any danger for themselves, shooting at him suddenly and without fear because they could remain hidden. They likely believed. I would imagine that those who were shooting these arrows, which David is speaking about, they possibly believed that what they were doing was a good thing. They really believed in their their cause. But I think that Possibly the fact that they were unwilling to to face the issues, to face the adversary, uh, possibly proves the fallacy of their attack. David then adds, in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, he adds a startling evaluation to this complaint when he says, For the inward mind and heart of man are deep. So he elaborates on this complaint, how these people are, are ambushing the blameless. He's saying, you know, there's no reason for them to attack me, but nevertheless, they're hiding, they're lurking, they're shooting secret arrows, and, and they're aiming them at me. And then he says, the inward mind and heart of men are deep. Now, that, that kind of stands out because it doesn't seem to fit in the flow of the text. And, and, and really, this statement is, is kind of added in and, and is equivalent to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, when he writes... The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's, that's what David is expressing, that the, the heart is a deep well. I mean, it, we can't even fathom the depths of the heart of man. In other words, you might be surprised at who may attack you. In word, because humans are sinful. And even good people can turn out to seek to do us harm. And it is the people who are closest to us... That caused the greatest pain. And some of you can recognize that. Because it's happened in your life. You've been shocked. You've been caught off guard. By by those who who basically spoke out against you in some way. Or did you wrong or hurt you. And it was the ones whom you care about the most. That that cut us the deepest. And I think that's very much the case for David. But David doesn't stop by merely voicing a complaint. He doesn't just go to God and whine. I think we've established a difference maybe here between complaining and whining. He doesn't stop with the voice of complaint, but goes on to remind himself as he he articulates this and place it, puts it in word. He reminds himself, and in doing so, he reminds all of us of the ultimate truth. That God will have the last word. And justice will be fully meted out. Nothing will go ...unjustified in the end. God, he says in verse 7, God will shoot his arrows at those who seek to ambush the blameless with their secret arrows. Now, as we read through the psalm, we find very quickly at the beginning that, that David uses this imagery of arrows to speak of words. And so I think it would be fitting in the context for when we read verse 7 to read when god god shoots his arrows at them that we maintain that same meaning in that term and that that it is speaking of the very word of god and so as we carry that that meaning forward we find that that god will turn injustice to justice and make wrong right by means of his word and just as the adversaries in the earlier part of the psalm in, in verse 3 uh, uh, their tongues were described as swords, we find in the New Testament a very uh, uh, um, comparable description of the very word of God in Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we we understand that when God responds to these these ...unfounded attacks that may be placed on those who are blameless... ...that he primarily does so by means of his word. And whether it's by the proclaimed word of God here and now... ...in this particular age, today even, as we the word is preached... ...or whether it's going to come by the sharp sword that comes from the mouth of Christ... ...that's described in Revelation 19 at the very end... ...when he comes back in judgment which is in fact the word as well, God guarantees that those who seek to do the righteous harm through means of both deed and mere words will face their due justice. And in the midst of our pain and grief that is caused by those who would seek to do us harm, David provides us with a word to encourage us. It's not just a complaint. It's not the whining. It's... It's a word to to unpack the reality of life to then only turn and remind us of something that should leave us greatly encouraged. David also teaches us that even the grief that is caused by those who speak false accusations and seek to uh, seek us harm. These themselves will turn out for God's glory as the tables are turned and as the psalmist writes, all mankind fears Declaring what God has brought about and pondering what he has done. And so we see that even beyond our understanding, as we find ourselves in those difficult situations, maybe, maybe like David, where others are, are making accusations and they're tearing us apart in some way and it hurts and it affects us, we need to be reminded that even in the midst of that kind of injustice, in the midst of of people doing wrong to us, that God is at work and God has promised that even through those things that, that He will be glorified so we can go through those, however difficult, knowing that we can bring God glory walking in the midst of those difficulties. We are therefore admonished or exhorted at the end of this psalm, to rejoice in the Lord, regardless of the difficulty of our circumstances, and, and to hide from the attacks in this life, not by tucking ourselves in our house and going, oh, woe is me, nobody likes me, but hiding with God. Or, or as we have sought to encourage you over the past five weeks, that you take refuge in Him. In addition, I think it's worth adding to this that we are exhorted maybe not so much directly in this psalm, but just merely by reading it, that we're exhorted to consider our own words spoken in secret about others. We are reminded that as followers of Christ, we must not be characterized by the first six verses of this psalm. We are accountable for our words and we must seek to use them for the purpose of edifying others. We are exhorted throughout the New Testament not to retaliate against those who revile us. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, in the Sermon of the Mount, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Peter reminds us when he writes, uh, 1 Peter, to not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. That is, people saying Bad. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were, you were called. You were called to blessing, to speak blessing, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, as encouraging as the ethical and maybe more practical perspectives we read these Psalms is, we, we must not stop there. We need to be reminded of the context of the entirety of the book of Psalms. And its message is multifaceted. I mean, there's so many messages that we could pull out of the Psalms, yet it is singular. With all those many varying themes that we may pick up on, ultimately they all point back to one singular ultimate theme. And while there is much to teach us about how to to live in the midst of our joy and in the midst of our adversity, there is this singular theological message that continually points us to our desperate need of, ...of God and the provision of righteousness that he offers us ultimately in Christ. And there are at least two contextual links in this particular psalm... ...that that point us to these very things. They remind us of the overall message contained in in this portion of Scripture... ...in this particular psalm. First, if you remember, if you were here... ...if not, you can go back and listen to it. But if you remember in the first message of this series on Psalm 1 and 2... We sought to see how these two psalms served uh, to introduce the entire book of psalms by setting the theme for the book and unveiling the, the categories that, that are weaved throughout the book. You know, categories like uh, the righteous prevailing," the, the wicked perishing," uh, uh, meditating on the law, uh, the taking refuge in him. Many different themes are introduced that are then carried throughout the entirety of this book, weaved through these psalms. And, and, and as we move through the Psalms, there, there's more meat placed on the bone. So Psalm 1 and 2 is, in essence, that, that skeleton that builds that. And then as we go through the Psalms, we begin to put more theological meat on that. Now, one of the themes that we were, was introduced in Psalm 2, verse 1, was the question of injustice in light of the promise that Psalm 1 ended with. You know, Psalm 1 ends with the fact that the, the God knows the way of the righteous, but the, the way of the wicked will perish and then Psalm 2 comes up, and remember the question? Well, if that's the case, then why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And that question that the psalmist raised there to, to set the tone for the rest of the, the book, it, it, it's framed around two key terms. And th- those terms are, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And as we come to Psalm 64, we find that very same question reiterated on a personal level. It's it's reiterating the same problem that David himself is is recognizing in his life that that the psalmist in Psalm 2 is speaking as a general uh, concept. You see, in verse 2, it says, David wrote that that God would hide him from the secret plots of the wicked and from the throng of the evildoers. And this verse, because it, it could more... Easily or probably even better be translated to say, Hide me from the vain plotting of the wicked and the raging of the evildoers. And so, with that in mind, this personal experience that David is facing of the, the very raging of nations or peoples and the plotting in vain of the peoples against him now, personally, uh, is the very same thing that was introduced in Psalm 2 that was not just that which is for David or for a, an individual, but the experience of the righteous. In this life. And it raises that same question again and again and again. How is it that the righteous are going to stand and prevail and the wicked are going to perish? Because it just doesn't seem that way. It is this experience of this plotting and raging in this world that that drives us back to the truths introduced to us in the Psalms introduction. We are pointed back to that very introduction where we, we saw what was... Revealed to us in psalm 1 and 2 And we're reminded of the response that was given to us in psalm 2 because the answer was already given there God has established his king on his holy heel and that king is his son And all who oppose this son will ultimately experience his wrath So this psalm points us back reminding us Of one of the central themes or really the central theme and second the exhortation to take refuge in him that we find at the very end of this psalm in verse 10 is a continual reminder of and really a pointer to the blessed man of Psalm 1 who lives the perfect life and continually lives in accordance to God's word. That This blessed man is perfectly successful in all he does and, and then in, in the Psalm 2 we're told that all who take refuge in him will themselves experience the blessed righteousness of the righteous man who is the blessed man of Psalm 1 and who, more importantly, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this theme, Take Refuge in Him, is what we have sought to to focus on throughout these few select psalms, namely Psalm 1 and 2, Psalm 18, Psalm 34, 37, and now today, 64. Now, these psalms are but a small segment Of what you will find throughout the entirety of this book. That help make more clear the singular ultimate theme and theology of this greatly loved book. Then finally, we must view this psalm not only from an ethical perspective and a theological perspective. We we need to do so from a prophetic perspective. Uh, The same prophetic perspective that the New Testament writers did. As as. We were reminded a couple weeks ago, when, when I spoke on Psalm 34, we saw how David's words were indeed prophetic. Uh, we saw, we looked at how in, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stood and preached that sermon, he, he quoted the, the words of David. And then he said, and David was a prophet. And then he took David's words out of his mouth and made them the words of Christ himself. And, and so the New Testament writers were reading the Psalms as prophecy. And so we must, at the very least, consider this view while we're reading through the Psalms, including this particular Psalm. Now, there's much care and caution that must be taken with this. We're not trying to to look for something that's not there. We're not trying to make something happen just so it sounds good or looks good. That's not the goal. But we, we need to consider that reality that numerous times in the New Testament, Psalms are quoted as prophetic. And David is said to be a prophet And so we must consider that as we read them. You see, next week, we're going to be returning back to the book of John, the Gospel of John that we're still almost done with. And we're going to be picking up with the arrest and trial of Christ, leading us up to uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, when we consider the false accusations that were made concerning Christ, we can begin to recognize the prophetic nature of David's words in this particular psalm. The sharp tongues and the words like arrows of those who plotted secretly in Psalm 64 are the accusations that would be made about the blameless Son of God in His final days before the cross. And throughout the Gospels, we read of the secret plots of the Pharisees to condemn Jesus, making up stories about Him that were, frankly, not true in order to bring Him down. The fulfillment of of this psalm in the life of Christ further proves uh, the Christological theme of psalms. And, or in other words, what I mean by that is that in light of the false accusations that, that were used to, to bring harm to Christ, we, we are able to clearly see how the ultimate goal of the psalms, a psalm like this one and all the psalms, is to point not to David as the author, but to Christ who is the greater son of David, who would come and fulfill all the scripture as he himself said. And in light of this prophetic perspective, we once again recognize the righteous man of verse 10. To be none other than the singular righteous man mentioned throughout the Psalms. He is the blessed man of Psalm 1, Jesus Christ. As the Word made flesh, Jesus was perfect humanity. He was human, fully human, but he was perfect human. Who himself throughout his life, sought his refuge in Yahweh. He provides the perfect example of rejoicing in the midst of the pain and grief of injustice because he himself would secure the ultimate victory over all injustice in this age. And as followers of Christ, we too seek to live as Christ lived. And now, while we never do this perfectly, at least I know I don't and I doubt you do, in this life, we can, and hear me, we can increasingly live a life in conformity to Christ as we grow in the knowledge of the Lord and in the knowledge of His Word that He so graciously and joyfully has revealed to us in the pages of the Bible. This life is filled with tribulation and trials for those who follow Christ. The Bible says it numerous times, that all who desire to live godly, will be persecuted. Uh, It is through much trial and tribulation that we enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is the the story of the believer. This is our testimony. If we truly follow Christ, sometimes this tribulation comes in a very tangible, physical form. We, We can read stories. There's things going on right now around this world where believers are suffering because of their faith very physically, being imprisoned and even put to death. But sometimes this tribulation, this, these trials come by way of scoffing and reviling of which David uh, reminds us of in the psalm, mere words that seek to do us harm, words that seek to uh, to undo our character to to falsely accuse us to to destroy our reputation, to undermine our testimony for the sake of the gospel. now our response to such Attacks range from, depending on where we are in the moment, they range from us fleeing to isolation, right? To hiding and maybe having a pity party sometimes. All the way to lashing out in retaliation, which again, is not good. But instead, we should begin by seeking to take our complaints to our Creator, to God. And seeking to hide, not from the world, in our isolation from society, but to hide in Him. To allow God to provide his protection over us while we are still living and moving and doing in this life. And to rejoice in the sovereign promises of God rather than to lash out in retaliation. We are exhorted by the word of God to bless those who attack us rather than repaying, reviling for reviling. Because it is blessing, again, to which you have been called, Christian. It was through unwarranted false accusations that Christ accomplished the greatest victory for mankind. And we too can come to embrace even the pain and grief of injustice done to us as a means by which God will reveal himself to a lost and rebellious world. We can get there. We can grow to that point. It is in this great promise that we can... Rejoice in the Lord as we as we take refuge in him in the midst of the injustice that will continue to mark this age. And We are reminded that through God or though God does not promise life in this age to be easy. And I assure you, nowhere in the Bible does he promise that he does promise joy in the midst of the trials and ultimate victory in the only righteous one, Jesus Christ the Son of God. And any who hope to experience the grace of God must, as we have reminded you over and over again, must take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You so much for another opportunity to peek into the the words of Scripture in the Psalms. And I pray that maybe this morning you will pique our interest to, to study them more to learn and grow through them even more beyond uh, just the, the surface I do pray that they would encourage us and impact us on that ethical level and and that we would relate to them emotionally and that they would drive us to you even through that emotional connection but I also pray God that we would be able to see in them the reality of the gospel as as Christ is, is weaved throughout them and unveiled even in the midst of these Old Testament writers who often spoke prophetically and that that reality will only give us greater confidence in what we already proclaim that, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world the one in whom we must run to and take refuge in if we desire to experience your grace and reconciliation in spite of our absolute sinfulness. So this morning, Lord, I pray that you would encourage the believer. Maybe there are those who are facing difficulties this morning, whether they be uh, on the verbal sense or the physical sense. I, I just pray, Lord, that your word would bring to them refuge and that they would find that refuge in you and be encouraged and be able to rejoice because you are working all things for their good and for your glory. But I also pray this morning for the person who may be here and doesn't know you, as Lord and Savior. They've never truly repented of their sins. Uh, whether they're a moral person or or not. Whether they, they, they look clean living. And, 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 and do good things or not. Uh, if they're here. And they've never come in. To be confronted with the gospel. With their absolute sinfulness. And their need to repent. And believe this good news. And receive the forgiveness that Christ alone brings, I pray this morning that you would work in their hearts and you would compel them to run to the cross, to run to Christ and take refuge in Him. So Father, as we share these next few moments in reflection and then even as we continue on beyond this service, I pray you'd continue to work in our hearts, drive home uh, these words and cause them to, to impact our lives and change us and conform us to the image of our wonderful, glorious Savior, Jesus Christ.